You're listening to Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this episode number 45 of Socialist News and Views. In the second half, we have future perspectives, but we start with the news. Community groups voice opposition to MPD settlement agreement is the title of an article on Minnesota Spokesman Recorder. The article by Abdi Muhammad from April 5th says, quote, the Unity Community Mediation Team, UCMT, held a press conference on April 3rd in response to the settlement agreement between the city of Minneapolis and the Department of Human Rights, DHR, on Friday, March 31st. They expressed their frustration in feeling as though they were left out of the process despite having an influential role, end quote. A.J. Flowers, project coordinator for the Young People's Task Force, is quoted in the article saying, quote, My biggest concern as a black man is the lack of acknowledgement of the wrongdoing that our police officers have done to us, end quote. In addition to this article, multiple other articles address the recent move by the city to push residents right here in my area into picking a new location for the 3rd Precinct, which was abandoned and burned down during the George Floyd uprising. Posted online were posters that were seen plastered on the fence of the old site of the burned-out 3rd Precinct that had the now-famous Welcome to Minneapolis-style logo, which shows the police station on fire but instead the poster read, no new third precinct, not now, not ever. We remember George Floyd, we demand abolition. The poster also directed folks to the city's upcoming listening sessions on the proposed third precinct rebuild. Sahan Journal has an article April 7th by Alfonso Galvan entitled, Cub Grocery Store Workers Avert Strike After Reaching a New Contract. The article says the strike was canceled and that, quote, the new contract, which members must still vote on at a later date, would provide raises of $2.50 and $3.50 an hour by spring 2024. It would also establish a landmark safety committee, end quote. Side note, according to a news release on the United Food and Commercial Workers Union site, on April 11th, the contract, which covered 3,000 workers, was ratified. U.S. Supreme Court temporarily blocks limits to abortion pill access is the title of an article by Jennifer Schutt on Minnesota Reformer on April 14th. The article says that Samuel Alito, the Supreme Court justice, halted the measures, but only until Wednesday at midnight. The article states that the partial stay would, quote, have required only doctors to prescribe and administer it, as opposed to other health care providers with licenses to prescribe pharmaceuticals. It would have required patients attend three in-person visits, ban telehealth, and ended dispensation of the medication by mail, end quote. Note, at the time of airing this episode, we will likely have an answer from the Supreme Court on this issue, so be prepared to take to the streets. 
Socialist Revolution editorial board writes an item on Marxist.com on April 5th entitled United States Trump's arrest deepens the crisis of the regime, which starts, quote, in yet another sign of the growing instability of U.S. bourgeois politics, criminal charges have been filed against a former president for the first time in American history, end quote. It says the charges stem from money Trump paid out of business accounts to hide damaging information from the voting public before an election. The courts consider the payments to all be campaign contributions, end quote. It is alleged that Trump knowingly falsified company documents, a state misdemeanor to cover up another crime, unrecorded presidential campaign donations, thus converting them into felonies, end quote. The article says the reason for the indictment is that the more careful elements of the ruling class see Trump as a, quote, rogue element, end quote. It also says, quote, although Trump is a capitalist himself, his intransigent individualism is a liability, and the vast majority of his class wants to remove him from the political equation, including many in the GOP, end quote. The European strike wave and the potential of the working class is the title of an article on Left Voice on April 7th by... Josefina L. Martinez, which says that while the epicenter has been in France, a wave of strikes has hit a number of other European countries. It outlines the huge protests against pension reforms in France and then states, quote, the United Kingdom is experiencing the biggest strike wave in half a century in Greece. There have already been three general strikes since the fateful train disaster on February 28th in Germany the largest strike of transport and public service workers in 30 years paralyzed the country on March 27th. In Portugal, the press describe a winter of discontent as the country saw a wave of national strikes of teachers, sanitation workers, and railway workers. Europe has not seen this level of labor militancy since the capitalist crisis of 2008, end quote. The article highlights the different sectors of workers involved in different countries of Europe and the specific conditions driving each movement, including stagnating wages, inflation, and in Greece, the train wreck, which killed 57 people. The article says labor bureaucracies are holding workers' demands within certain limits and, quote, aim to avoid linking the struggles of the internal front to any challenge to the imperialist foreign policy of their governments, end quote. It says, while European countries continue increasing military spending through NATO, at home cracks have developed and important contradictions are becoming more visible. The article highlights the important role played by youth sectors in the struggles in Europe and says that with harsh repression, especially in France, quote, the rage is spreading, end quote. It ends by saying the struggle against reformist elements is key and outlines the, quote, need for an independent, anti-capitalist, socialist, and revolutionary perspective, end quote. Jean Shaul writes for World Socialist website April 16th, quote, on Saturday, fighting broke out across Khartoum, the Sudanese capital, and other cities between rival factions of Sudan's armed forces, end quote. This, in an article titled Sudan, fighting erupts between rival military factions backed by external powers. The article outlines numerous external powers with interests in the region, including Russia, the U.S., Egypt, United Arab Emirates, and Saudi Arabia. The article says the U.S. is concerned about interruptions in oil supplies and Russia has interests as it is trying to establish a base in the region and accounts for 40% of Sudan's gold exports. The article says, however, the conflict could destabilize the whole horn of Africa. Civilian casualties are increasing in Sudan amid these clashes between these two Sudanese military groups, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces. And now we go to a 30-second clip. From Democracy Now! April 17th of Sudanese activist Maureen El-Neal first speaking about the foreign entities involved 
in the country. The foreign entities, the, the, the regimes that are uh, backing the Arab support forces or the Sudanese armed forces, um, which have switched sides. Uh, you could say that maybe um, for the time being, the Arab support forces is backed by Russia, while the Sudanese armed forces is backed by Egypt. There are other players such as the United States or the United Arab Emirates and all of these anti-democratic regimes that are uh, uh, backing the, our anti-democratic regime. And here's another clip from the Democracy Now! interview with Sudanese activist Maureen El-Neal, where she speaks about the current demands of the Sudanese people and what Sudanese workers and activists are currently doing on the ground. This clip is about a minute and a half. Uh, right now, what needs to happen is a ceasefire before anything uh, else. What is happening on the ground actually is that the Sudanese people are the ones leading uh, efforts that could have been expected from a government if we had a government that is actually interested in the well-being of the people. Um, the, the, the civilians are the ones who are um, rescuing people who are trapped um, in, in risky zones. Uh, they are the ones who are, uh, we are the ones who are creating um, uh, you know, makeshift ways of uh, receiving and delivering medical attention. Um, we are using our own personal vehicles to transport um, uh, the injured and anyone who is in need of medical attention. Um, and we are the ones who are coordinating the efforts of how to uh, cope with the situation, how to cope with the power outages, with the with the water cuts. Um, it is civilians who have returned to work during this time uh, just for such emergencies uh, such as water cuts and, and power outages. Uh, we are not receiving any help, whether from uh, the, the government. We're not even receiving statements to clarify what is happening. Um, all we're doing is guesswork from the ground. Uh, and we're not receiving any help from uh, UN entities or, uh, or international community. Uh, we are our own government right now, helping ourselves and um, absolutely not paying attention to the statements of uh, the government because uh, they have been proved to be um, absolutely not credible. And that is the news now in honor of workers struggling around the globe for a better world. And with a specific nod to French workers, we go to this song in honor of the Paris Commune and specifically the calls of the communards for soldiers, which it calls, quote, children of the people, end quote, not to obey orders. Here it is, hymn of the 18th of March, composed by Joseph Cosma, and here first performed in 1971 on the 100th anniversary of the Commune by the People's Ensemble of Paris. Depuis Valmy 93 et la grande révolution, les soldats de l'armée française sont les enfants de la nation. Pour sauver le peuple de France, vous répondrez toujours présent. Mais pas de guerre à l'espérance des ouvriers, des paysans. Gloire au grand jour de la commune, peuple et soldats main dans la main. La république n'en est qu'une, celle du peuple les petits hommes qui gouvernent, ils font la pluie et le beau temps. Ils ont de l'or et des casernes, mais leur pouvoir n'aura qu'un temps. N'écoutez pas les tensionnaires, trahir n'est pas dans leur mandat. Vous n'êtes pas des mercenaires, mais des Français, peuples et soldats. Gloire au grand jour de la commune, peuple et soldats main dans la main. La République n'en est qu'une, celle du peuple sauveur. 
Votre cœur bat sous l'uniforme du même rythme que chez nous. Et ce cœur-là, c'est un cœur d'homme qu'on ne peut pas mettre à genoux. Les dirigeants de contrebande, c'est tout cela qu'il faut briser. La voix du peuple vous commande, fraternisez, fraternisez. Gloire au grand jour de la commune, peuple et soldat main dans la main. La république n'en est une, c'est du peuple And now we go to perspectives from a number of folks on what we can expect both in the U.S. and internationally in the next five years and in the next 10 years. It's a big question, so different folks decided to come at it from different angles. Here are the responses. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Abdirahman. Um, thank you so much for the invite to uh, to this podcast and in uh, answering this question. Um, so in the next five to ten years, I really do not see things changing significantly in, in America. Um, I suspect we're still going to have a policy, a climate change policy where there isn't any substantial change in emissions. There's going to be too many loopholes. Um, I mean, we, we already see countries like the UK restarting, you know, coal factories. So I don't see us doing significant change when it comes to climate change. Uh, I see us still uh, struggling with COVID-19. Uh, People will say that it's going to continue being uh, like just an endemic virus, but it's going to kill people at a higher rate, unfortunately. Uh, we're still going to have uh, significant income inequality. Um, workers are going to lose, you know, uh, workers are going to organize and do their best to try to have as many rights. Um, however, our government is going to continue to side with big corporations, uh, you know, partly because... They control our governmental system by lobbying uh, and, you know, bribing politicians, etc. Um, we may have a moon landing, and NASA appears to be focused on that. Uh, so that, that would be great. Uh, however, you know, our everyday needs will continue to be difficult. The U.S. will focus on... Uh, The Pacific, like they've been saying that they're focusing more on the Pacific, um, and that may push um, that may push China to invade Taiwan. Uh, I mean, recently we saw that the president of Taiwan uh, that really supported the separatist movement, uh, which you know caused Nancy Pelosi to come and visit the country and cause China to become exceptionally upset where they were practically um, uh, blockading the country with military drills, the Taiwan uh, specifically. Um, that was extremely dangerous. It could have brought us into war. Uh, and that president of Taiwan, I forget her name, um, she lost uh, recently and uh, she's no longer the president of Taiwan because 
most people in Taiwan do not support an aggressive approach towards China. They just want to keep the status quo. Status quo works for everybody. Uh, however, um, you know, people in Taiwan who are extremists uh, want to uh, bring in American imperialism to the country. It is problematic. And, and also the U.S. is more than willing to uh, have another theater where they can again, waste trillions of, of American dollars for this, like, foreign proxy war, like the one that we have in Ukraine right now. Hello, my name is Craig, uh, Craig Johnson. I study fascism, and I have a podcast called 15 Minutes of Fascism. Uh, because of that, my imaginings about what the future is going to be like are, are heavily colored by my, my fear and anxiety about successful fascist organizing in the United States and the rest of the world. I think, I predict that fascism will continue to organize and grow in the United States and also in a lot of the rest of the Western world where it's currently more powerful than it has been since either the 60s or the 30s. I think that that means that fascists are going to be moving coalitions of other right-wing people further and further to the right. I think that we're going to see more attempts to directly overthrow democratic governments, like we saw recently, as in, you know, last year in Brazil and in the United States. I think that we're going to see more and more extreme right-wing candidates winning elections, like we saw Giorgio Maloney in Italy, or even the in Sweden, you know, the, the, the toppling of long-term socialist governance by a right-wing, by a right-wing political party. Um, I think that this means that we on the left have a lot of organizing cut out for ourselves, right? We are, in this sense, like a decade behind the right wing. They have more money, and they have been organizing intentionally in order to contest state power for a long time. And if the left wing wants to catch up and fight back, uh, we're going to be needing to dedicatedly attempt to do that. that that's what we're going to have to do. Hey, my name is Matt Hoke, and I am looking at the social collapse that could happen. So the anxiety about social collapse comes from multiple sources, though climate is certainly number one. When you study social collapse, what people really worry about is called cascading infrastructure collapse. My contention is that the world is already in the slow motion beginnings of a cascading infrastructure collapse, but it can be controlled and reversed. And to an extent, at least certain governments like the Biden administration are investing in infrastructure to prevent this sort of thing. Now, cascading infrastructure collapses when, say, a highway gets shut down, but that highway is the way that workers in other industries get to their jobs. Say the electrical workers can't get to their jobs. That's going to cause maybe problems for the Internet, but what if the natural gas system now runs on the Internet? So the concept is that as social chaos increases, the human factor which maintains infrastructure will be increasingly disruptive, and disruption in one area of infrastructure can contagiously spread to other areas. Now, given the stress and strain on society in general, you can begin to see something like a cascading infrastructure collapse happening already in the mass resignations going on in education and healthcare. Now, we might think of these things as services rather than infrastructure, but if workers are depending on education to watch their children and healthcare to keep them healthy, then disruptions in these areas could conceivably help disrupt the smooth flowing of operations in the more central industrial infrastructure. I don't think coastal flooding by 2030 will primarily affect Western countries. Uh, the most displaced people will probably be those in the high population, high temperature, low income global south. 
places like India, Indonesia, Africa, Latin America, and I have to imagine that Southeast Asia will get hit the worst. So a lot of this collapse anxiety forces people to ask, are we panicking because we were told to panic by a media that capitalizes on alarmism? Are we panicking because we should be concerned for our own well-being, or are we panicking because we care about people in other countries? So my hope is to reduce the panic while increasing people's determination to do something. Now, this is, I don't focus much on coastal flooding. Yes, we should care, and there will be some coastal flooding in the global north. Uh, we already see the increasing freak weather events. But my real message to Westerners is that climate change will mess up our lives, just not mainly by flooding. What we're looking at by 2030 is that the global agriculture, and NASA has an article talking about this, so it's you know established, um, global ag agriculture will not necessarily collapse by 2030, but will begin reducing crop yields. So corn will drop by about a quarter and wheat will drop by a fifth. Now at first, that doesn't sound like the world's largest concern. You know, we can hope the ruling class will come up with a solution by then or before then. However, I don't trust them uh, ever since COVID and the general neglect of people's well-being economically during COVID. So uh, my concern is that uh, with climate, things may have a multiplier effect. Uh, we're seeing massive melting of glacier ice, and that seems bad at first just because it's a sign of warming, but also that glacier ice is part of the world's climate anchor, which helps stabilize it. There are many different mechanisms like this, and as they interact, climate change could accelerate much more quickly than humanity expects. And at this point, we might suspect that the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change could be giving a rosier picture than the reality due to the pressure possibly of the fossil fuel industry on the United Nations. You know, the fossil fuel industry is so good controlling national governments, surely it can exert pressure on intergovernmental organizations. However, uh, furthermore, cascading collapse takes more than one form. Uh, we can have cascading infrastructure collapse, cascading collapse of climate mechanisms, but also cascading collapse of social stability. Uh, I used to glorify disruption a bit, but now I see political polarization as itself a potential factor of social collapse. And I'm worried more about the right than the left in terms of violence. But I'm also worried about a gradual descent into chaos. Apparently, a young man from the United States is now more likely to be shot in Philadelphia or Chicago than if they were deployed as a soldier to Iraq. And what really causes this political violence to me is the growth of wealth inequality combined with poverty. Now, Syria definitely had a major agricultural disruption, and that was due to climate change. And, you know, its, it's civil war followed closely on the heels of that. So arguably, Syria is the first climate change war. Uh, Ukraine also is disrupting the global food supply in terms of just the war happening there. So uh, there could be more wars in the future as, you know, scarcity compels different national actors to, uh, you know, guard their resources or pursue other people's resources. And the idea is that all these different mechanisms sort of rolling onto each other in this what's now called a polycrisis um, would lead to maybe a food supply uh, hyperinflation, a stable commodities hyperinflation. And then this social chaos uh, that comes with hyperinflation and the, the hardship that comes with it, you know, leading to more and more possibly violent conflict and with the violent conflict, more and more uh, infrastructural collapse. So that is my concern about um, the possibilities of social collapse, partly due to cascading infrastructure collapse, interlocking with uh, definitely with climate change and the global food supply. Um, also just um, political instability. And obviously, to me, the solution to all of this would be some kind of sweeping global democratic socialist nonviolent revolution to cover climate change and everyone's well-being. But uh, that's, you know, a project that I guess we've all got in the works.
Hi, my name is Jessica Garraway. I'm on the board of Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, founder of the Ecological Justice Working Group, part of local, statewide, and national coalitions around uh, with educators getting involved in the climate fight, as well as I've also been very involved in fights around police brutality and abuses by police. And I've written uh, on, I've written various articles around those topics. Um, something I've been thinking about has been, uh, so I, I tend to be very locally focused and domestically focused in terms of the state of the class struggle, whether it be through labor struggles or ecological justice struggles or struggles against the police state, right? Um, however, I'm keenly aware that there are factors outside of the country's borders that uh, will, would deeply impact the work we're doing here. Namely, I'm thinking of the war in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia, though the U.S. is also fighting through a proxy war. Um, I'm thinking about potential war with China, which there's been a key, uh, there's a key middle, military figure um, who said he he foresaw a war with China by 2025. Um, China is also a nuclear, has nuclear capabilities. Um, it, it would, you know, this is, it's very serious. And going along that line of thought, okay, war with China, high, high casualties. Let's say, let's say, what if, what would happen if there was a draft, right? Um, I've debated this with a, a really sharp friend of mine, fellow comrade, and we kind of disagree, but <laughs> my perspective is that I think a lot of people, if as long as, like, things can be shitty, but as long as there's enough money for DoorDash and Netflix, there's a semblance of comfort. No, not everyone has that, but a lot of people still do have that. Um, now, imagine those same people are asked to sacrifice their lives in a war that they don't believe in one iota. Um, I, I get the sense that people, once they compare to, the, to Vietnam, are far less prone to believe U.S. propaganda and U.S. patriotism and all that, though I know there's a number that certainly are on that train, I think there are many that would not be. And if you want to talk about engagement in, in the struggle, I mean, that would lead, that would, uh, I think that the, kind of the resistance to something of that magnitude would be pretty fierce. And it's a question of if these various movements can understand, like the climate movement, the ecological movement should understand this intersection. The military, military excursions are some of the biggest, I think the biggest emitters of CO2 and, and climate change causing, you know, um, emitters, right? So... That's an example of an intersection right there that 
we haven't actually been doing a very good job of exploring. Uh, I have my friend, he who's got his start in the anti-war movement with the Iraq War. He's very concerned that any kind of the kind of militancy and class struggle we need, if say there was a draft and the U.S. were to decide to go to war with China, he's fearful that the pacifism of the uh, anti-war movement and kind of like the boomer ideology could stifle the kind of resistance we need. Now, I was never a part of the anti-war movement. I know it's uh, the Iraq war protests were like the biggest that ever happened in terms of anti-war protests. And I think of, of any movement, to be quite frank, it was the most ineffective any movement I've seen in recent years, just in terms to be able to deter anything in terms of the, the war machine. And so anything that were to address the uh, a war with China would have to be a, I would say it would have to be like a militant, direct action oriented um, movement. Um, what would this mean for labor? Um, I know for me, I, I feel like at least educators would, that's another intersection of involvement. You know, if you're talking about drafting our young ones that we work with every day, I'm pretty sure educators would have something to say about that. And that would be a, another, you know, that would be another, that would be an intersection where there could be some activity. Um yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm just obviously very. I'm talking pretty much at the inner, the the lens of war with China and what could happen, and it's all you know. It's um, speculative. And that's our show, episode forty-five. Thanks for listening. Solidarity. This has been another edition of Socialist News and Views with your host, Nick Schillingford.